told Brother Miller just a few minutes ago I didn't want to let him go. So I know we may have to have a vote here tonight to see if we'll let him go to North Alabama to his next meeting. And he's going where it's colder, and we pray for traveling mercies as they leave us and, and go there uh, to preach in another meeting. Let's ask the Lord to bless us again. Now, Lord, we've come now to hear your word. Thank you for sending your servant to us these days, loaning him to us. We thank you for your preachers that are gifts to your church. And, Lord, we pray you give us listening ears tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. My soul, where else could you have gone tonight and heard O Come Angel Band? And then, is not this the land of Beulah? Hallelujah. I love the way you folks sing here. Uh, you ought to have to travel around the country and listen to some of this stuff that I hear. <laughs> you have to dig your way out before you can even stand on level ground when it comes time to preach. Brother Don, you know I'm telling the truth, don't you? Wonderful singing. Thank you, Brother Jonathan. Well, I love you folks, and I've enjoyed my visit here. I count you among my dear and precious friends, brothers and sisters in Christ. And when the dear Lord smiles on you, and you get to visit in the Ozark Mountains of Arkansas, uh, give us a call and come by our place. What a blessed time that would be. Now tonight I shall preach uh, on the holiness of God. Our passage is a familiar one, Isaiah chapter 6. I have not spoken often on the holiness of God I suppose there are two reasons for that. One, my own inability to comprehend the absolute moral perfection and impeccability of our God. And number two, my inability to articulate what little I have comprehended. But after the manner of a mortal man, I shall attempt to expound this wonderful passage tonight. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And 
The post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thy sin is taken away. And thine iniquity is purged. Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I, send me. I shall preach my sermon around three headings. First, I want you to see the historical circumstances. Secondly, I want us to talk about this holy confrontation. Isaiah sees the Lord. And thirdly, I want to talk about this holy commitment. Here am I. Send me. Now, by way of the historical circumstances, I would remind you that Uzziah had been a good king. Much of the hopes of the nation had rested in Uzziah. He had been a leper in the latter years of his life. A stark contrast is evident in our text. Earthly Kings die, but King Jesus still lives on. Isaiah has been a statesman and a prophet during the administration of Uzziah. Often the death of a king is a dark and dangerous time in the life of a nation. Isaiah's ministry will be crucial to the nation of Israel at this time. Consequently, God appears to Isaiah and gives him this vision. He gives him this vision in order to encourage him and to strengthen his hand in the work. Now, I might point out for you that some of the scholars suggest that it is here in Isaiah chapter 6 where Isaiah is converted and called to be a prophet. I respond to them by suggesting that they read chapters 1 through 5 before coming to such a conclusion. Let me tell you who it was 
that Isaiah saw. He did not see Jehovah God. He did not see God the Father. We are told in John chapter 1 verse 18, No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. In John chapter 12, after quoting a lengthy passage from Isaiah chapter 6, we have in verse 41 these words. Thus spake Isaiah when he saw his glory and spake of him. Isaiah saw a pre-incarnate vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. He saw him in all of his glory. Now I could speak more at length regarding the historical circumstances, but I want us to spend most of our time talking about this holy confrontation. And I want to do two things here. One, I want you to see the true character of God. And then I want to talk about the terrible condition of Isaiah. Now, under this heading, the true character of God, I want to talk about those items that have to do with his power. He's the Lord of hosts. And then I want to talk about those items that have to do with his purity. He's the Lord of holiness. Now, I cannot conceive of anything that is of greater need in the church today than a fresh vision of the true character of God. The revisionists in our day have created a God that the Bible knows nothing about. I want us to see the true character of God. Now, in case I lose some of you before I'm finished, I want to give you five items regarding the power of God. First, I want you to see his remarkable transcendence. He's high and lifted up. Second, I want you to see the resplendent temple. Isaiah saw the Lord in the temple. Thirdly, I want you to see the royal throne of God. Isaiah saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. Fourthly, I want you to see the regal train of God. His train filled the temple. And number five, I want you to see the resounding terror 
of the Lord. The post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried. Now, the remarkable transcendence. Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up. Now, when we refer to the transcendence of God, we do not mean to imply that he is a God afar off and not a God close at hand. We do mean to say, however, that he is a big God. I mean, he transcends all human comprehension. He transcends all of time and space. If you could board an intergalactic spacecraft and travel back into time, you could never go far enough but what God would be beyond that. If you traveled back to the dawn of creation, you would not have gone far enough. If you traveled back to a time when the unnavigated ether of endless space had never been disturbed by the brush of an angel's wing, you would not have traveled far enough. The God of the Bible transcends time and space. He is transcendent. But now I want you to consider the resplendent temple in which Isaiah saw the Lord. I would remind you that on one occasion, God said to Solomon, The heavens, nor the heaven of heavens, can contain me. And yet, this transcendent God has been pleased to dwell among men. And for those who are the redeemed, he has been pleased to dwell in us. We are the temples of the living God. Now the scholars are divided. Half of them declare that Isaiah saw this vision in the earthly temple. But the other half of the scholars agree with me that Isaiah saw this vision in the heavenly temple. Let me say something to you now about the royal throne. Isaiah saw the Lord sitting upon the throne. Well, I ask you, why shouldn't he be on the throne? He is King Jesus after all. We are told in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, when he had by himself purged our sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. 
We're told in that same chapter, verse 13, that God, his father, said to him, Sit thou on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. I want to tell you, beloved, our God reigns. Our God reigns. He is not in the heavens wringing his hands nor shaking his head. He is not scurrying around, jockeying around, trying to come up with a contingency plan. I want to tell you that the fall of Adam and the depravity of the human heart did not catch him by surprise. I want to tell you that our and Boko Haram and Isis and Mohammed and Islam have not caught him off guard. Now the heathen may rage and the people imagine a vain thing, but he that sitteth In the heavens shall laugh. He shall have them in derision. He is in business tonight. And one of these days, with one wisp of his breath, he will consign the devil and the demons and their disciples to the bottomless pit of hell. That's why the church of the redeemed gathers on the Lord's day morning to sing songs like this. Oh, worship the King, all glorious above, and gratefully sing His wonderful love. He is on the throne. Let me say something to you now about the, about the regal train. The text says that his train filled the temple. Now you are aware that oriental kings wore long flowing robes. The train was that part which flowed behind and along on the ground. It was a mark of distinction. It was a mark of nobility. And I would remind you that one of these days the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ is going to fill this earth like the waters that cover the sea. One of these days every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord and give him glory. Let me say something to you now about the resounding terror of the Lord. The post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried. The old preacher Matthew Henry asked this question, Shall the post of the door be moved at the voice of the Lord and the church sit still? I tell you, we too should be moved at such resounding terror. Can I speak of these things further? 
May I remind you that the remarkable transcendence speaks of his immensity. The royal throne speaks of his excellency. And the regal train speaks of his effulgence. The transcendence speaks of his immensity. The throne speaks of his government. The train speaks of his splendor. Hallelujah for the true character of God. But now let me speak of these items that refer to his purity. There are two of them, the song of the angels and the sanctifying altar. Did you hear the angels sing? I thought about referring to this as the seraphic antiphony. But I wasn't exactly sure what that meant. And so I decided to stick with the song of the angels. Listen to them sing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, in those days, folks often uh, repeated things for emphasis, but I would point out for you that only the holiness of God is spoken of thrice like this. The power of God is sometimes given to us as a double. He is powerful. He is powerful, but no other attribute is spoken of like this. Holy, holy, holy. Can you hear one of them saying holy? And the other takes up the refrain, holy. And yet another, holy. And they repeat it again and again. Or could it be that the angels themselves are Trinitarian? in their theology. And one of them says, Holy is the Lord, our Father. And another says, Holy is the Lord Jesus. And yet another says, Holy is the Spirit of God. What a song. What a privilege to join in with the angels to sing Songs like this. I can hear the angels playing on a harp with golden strings. Soon my Lord shall come and take me to a land where angels roam. And I shall join them in the song of the ages. But now let me point out the sanctifying altar. Thank God for the altar. Thank God that when you and I come into the close, intimate presence of the Holy God, on our best day, in our finest moment, we shall be grateful 
for a altar that sanctifies the soul. We need a fresh vision of the true character of God. But now I want you to put that aside. And I want to talk to you about the terrible condition of Isaiah. Two things, his plight and his purging. Listen to him. Woe is me, for I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Isaiah is not simply confessing that he has used uh, unsavory language. No, Isaiah is confessing that in the depths of his innermost reaches, he is sinful to the core and he needs the cleansing and the grace of the sanctifying altar. And beloved, that's our plight. That's our need. And then the purging. Then flew one of the seraphims with a live coal in his hand and laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this has touched thy lips and thine iniquity is taken away and thy sin purged. I have wondered what might have happened if some of the leading lights of our day had had this vision. I imagine the Toronto crowd would have gotten down on their hands and knees and barked like a dog. I imagine our friends out in Tulsa would have said, hot dog, we're going to raise more than eight million this time. Benny Hinn would have slain the angels in the spirit. But not so with Isaiah. He feels the weight of his sin, the burden of his undone condition and he cries out to the Lord for mercy. Now let me close my sermon by saying something about this heartfelt commitment. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go? Then said I, here am I, send me. I want to tell you, my friend, before you go to speak for the Lord, before you stand to testify of the grace of God, you ought to know something about the true character of the one whom you represent. And you ought to have heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? I dreamed of a city called glory, so bright and so fair. When I entered the gates of the city, the angels all met me there. They led me from mansion to mansion, and oh, the sights that I saw. But I said, I want to see Jesus. He's the one who died for all. And I bowed on my knees and cried, holy, holy, holy. I clapped my hands and sang glory, glory to the Son of God. I clapped 
my hands and sang glory, glory to the Son of God. Let's bow and pray. Our Father, would you be pleased to write the message of this text upon the hearts of your people and before the eyes of any in this room who are without the Savior. May this word, may this message be like incorruptible seed that the Spirit will wield to bring about the new birth to regenerate men who are dead in trespasses and sins. For Jesus' sake, amen.